Hello, everybody, and welcome to Resonant Frequency, the Amateur Radio Podcast. My name is Richard, and I am your host. Uh, thank you all for being with us this time around. Just wanted to let you all know that uh, my, my, uh, my job has been keeping me really, really busy, and uh, I really didn't have the time this month to uh, sit down and get a fresh new podcast done for you all. And I really do apologize for that, and we'll be back on the same format uh, next time around. Uh, this time around, so that y'all do have something, because I didn't want to leave y'all hanging, we've got, uh, uh, we're going to go ahead and do a, uh, kind of a, a best of or, uh, gold, uh, oldies resonant frequency episode. I got a couple of interviews that I did, uh, sometime back. I'll slide on in here for y'all. So, uh, once again, thanks for downloading us this week. We'll be back to normal next time. We've got some new intro music, as you can tell. Please uh, please let me know what y'all think about that. And with that, we'll go ahead and uh, move on into the show. DXCC honor roll and five band DXCC among uh, writing numerous articles for numerous uh, amateur related journals. And today we're going to talk with Carl about radio wave propagation. Uh, I know it's a big mystery to a lot of y'all, but uh, we're going to see if Carl can help us out. Thank you for coming on Resonant Frequency, the amateur radio podcast, Carl. Oh, glad to help out, Richard. Alrighty. Um, our guys, we're 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 trying to make sure everybody's not afraid of propagation. It's probably one of the biggest words in amateur radio, and yeah, we get a little bit of an overview when we're taking our entry level license tests. But uh, a lot of guys are still unclear on what uh, what's going on with it. Can you give us a, a a quick overview of possibly what radio wave propagation is? Sure, I can do that. Yes. Well, in general, uh, propagation is just the mechanism by which an electromagnetic wave gets from point A to point B. You know, there are many ways to do that. Uh, a lot of them we're quite familiar with. For example, line of sight, that is a propagation mode, and that's what we use when we uh, you know, talk through repeaters or even talk through a satellite. Uh, another mode that we should be quite familiar with is ground wave, and if you just listen to any AM broadcast stations, uh, um, that uh, that's ground wave, and uh, uh, you'll get quite familiar with that. Uh, when we start dealing with uh, amateur radio propagation, uh, generally we we, we want to talk about uh, two two uh, parts of the atmosphere. Uh, one is the troposphere, and uh, tropospheric propagation is mostly VHF, UHF. And if you've ever listened to an FM radio and heard a real distant station coming in, or watched TV and seen a distant TV station coming in, that's more than likely that's uh, due to tropospheric propagation. Now, what's most important to uh, uh, hams is uh, HF propagation, and that's via the ionosphere. 
And there are many subsets of ionospheric propagation, and we're going to get into that, I think, a little bit later. And, of course, there are some more exotic modes that don't fall into the ones I've described. Uh, one comes to mind is moon bounce. So it is a form of propagation, uh, and it has a little reflection off the moon involved, too. So uh, hopefully that's a, a good overview of what is propagation. Well, that, that'll probably clear quite a few things up for uh, some of the folks out there. And uh, that's one of the things I like, Carl, is one of those guests that I ask them a question, they answer two or three of them. Yeah, <laughs> Makes things go. a whole lot easier. Well, um, do radio waves propagate differently at different frequencies? Yes, they do. Um, uh, and, and it's really... There are three things that an electromagnetic wave can do. Generally, it goes in a straight line unless it's uh, affected by something, and that, that something is the troposphere or the ionosphere. And uh, the amount of bending that incurs, uh, which is called refraction, is very dependent on the frequency of the electromagnetic wave uh, with respect to the medium it's propagating in. So, for example, uh, if you're on, uh, you know, 10 meters, uh, the troposphere uh, generally won't do any bending, but the ionosphere, of course, will bend the 10-meter wave back to Earth, and that allows us to talk to distant stations. Um, as we go down in frequency, generally the wave will bend more as we go lower in frequency, and that has lots of implications to... Uh, just how propagation and how a wave gets from point A to point B. Alrighty, uh, yeah, uh, I've uh, I've fooled around with most of the frequencies I can find radio for, and uh, I've got a lot of ha talking three or four hundred miles on a handheld stories that uh, people get tired of hearing around here. <laughs> that's more than likely that's via tropospheric propagation, and uh, it's just bending in the. Troposphere, which isn't too far up above us. And I always make sure I always make sure I get a card from them guys because a lot right. of times folks won't believe me. In fact, uh, yeah. I'm not sure if you're familiar with Copper's Cove. It's uh, it's three four hundred miles from here, and I worked a guy one night on half a watt on a handheld mm -hmm. standing in the middle of a parking lot. Believe it or yeah. not. Yeah. Oh, interesting. Okay. Uh, let's see. Getting back on track. Uh, okay. These guys. Uh, well, there's a lot of terms these guys have heard, and some of them uh, they may or may not understand. Uh, one of the ones that gets thrown around a lot around here is space weather. Uh, can you give us an idea of what space weather is? Sure. Uh, the term space weather refers to the impact that the sun has on our Earth. In other words, uh, it's a term describing how the sun affects our environment, and our environment being the Earth uh, environment. Uh, of course, on the good side, the sun provides for life. If we didn't have the sun, we wouldn't be talking on this iPod right at the moment. On the bad side, though, uh, the sun can hiccup, and it can disrupt, disrupt propagation uh, for us and, and, and our amateur radio endeavors. So it's very important that, that as amateurs we kind of understand the basics of what the sun can do, which then uh, results in space weather. And we're going to get into a little bit more of that, I think, later, probably when we talk about some, uh, some specific disruptions to propagation. And it's interesting to note that 
space weather is, is uh, important to amateur radio because you know we're interested in it, but it's really more important to uh, uh, scientists for other reasons. For example, uh, if the space weather is bad, it can disrupt satellites. It can induce currents in their power grid and cause blackouts. And also it can cause harmful radiation for our astronauts when they're up there uh, going around the Earth or uh, going to the moon or maybe in the future even to, a, to a, you know, Mars or one of the other planets. So uh, space weather generally means what's happening around the Earth, but it can extend even further because the sun's reach is uh, quite far. Yeah. Uh, in fact, uh, <laughs> getting off on, well, I'm not going to get off on other things. We're going to try and keep this propagation. Uh, <laughs> that's uh, pretty much why solar flares are not our friends. Uh, yep. We, we, their power grids go down. Uh, some of these newer electronic devices just really don't handle uh, handle things like that very well. Yep. Uh, something to be said for old tube radios, I guess. Okay, yep. so, so let's drill down into this a little bit more. Uh, you know, these guys are trying to figure out how propagation can uh, work for them. So I guess we probably need to uh, discuss uh, the A-index. Can you give us an okay. idea what the A-index is? Sure, but uh, what we're going to start with is the K-index because uh, the A-index is derived from the K-index. So let's start with the K-index. And to do that, what we're going to do is talk about the Earth's magnetic field because uh, that's... Uh, basically, the K-index is a measure of uh, uh, the activity of the Earth's magnetic field. Um, the Earth's magnetic field can be, to a first order, approximated by a simple dipole. You know, like you see in uh, you know, your, uh, your high school text, you know, it's got the north and the south pole, and sure enough, the Earth has a north and a south pole. Um, when the sun hiccups, though, the result, which we'll uh, talk about uh, geomagnetic field activity and uh, later uh, can result in a distortion of the Earth's magnetic field. And the amount of distortion uh, from a quiet field is measured with a magnetometer. So what this instrument does is it just sits there and monitors the Earth's magnetic field. And uh, if the sun was constant, you know, constant forever and ever, the magnetometer would just sit there in a straight line. But what happens is uh, uh, every once in a while the sun hiccups and the result is the magnetic field is disturbed. Now the K-index is a measurement of the deviation of the Earth's magnetic field from the quiet time curve in a three-hour period. So that's the, one of the important things to note is the K-index is a, a three-hour index. And like I said, it measures the maximum deviation of the Earth's magnetic field from a quiet time condition in that three-hour period. And uh, based on how much it deviates, it's assigned a value from zero, which is quiet, to nine, which is most disturbed. Uh, this is the K-index. Uh, it is logarithmic. In other words, if the K-index goes from zero to one, that's a factor of 10. So it means there's a pretty good jump in uh, what's going on. In general, we as amateurs would like the key index to be small. So that leads us right into the A index. Um, the A index, like I said earlier, is derived from the, uh, from the K index. And what it is, the A index is basically a daily value. So what it does is takes the eight three-hour K indices 
and averages them, and what it comes up with is a, a, an average of the deviation from the quiet geomagnetic field curve over the entire day. Now it's reported on a, a linear scale from 0 to 400, 0 being quiet and 400 corresponding to the k equals 9, and that's done just to uh, uh, allow more resolution than the k index. Um, and, and just like the k index, the a index can also uh, be put together with many observatories uh, from data from many observatories worldwide. And that index is then called the planetary A index or the planetary K index. And it gives you a good idea of overall what's happening to the Earth's magnetic field uh, on a very large scale. So uh, again, the K index and the A index, generally we'd like them to be small. Now there are some propagation modes that I think we're going to might talk about later that uh, uh, want a higher A or K index. And uh, we can get into that in a little bit. Uh, down the road here. Well, actually, we've kind of skirted it three or four times. Uh, we could probably go ahead at this point and, uh, you know, uh, the geomagnetic field and uh, geomagnetic storms, uh, we have a lot of problems with geomagnetic storms wiping out some of the traffic nets down in this area, down on 40 meters early in the day. Uh, could you expound upon that a little bit? Yeah, okay. Um, uh, a couple of years ago, the uh, Space Environment Center in Boulder, which is a division of NOAA, National Oceanic and uh, Atmospheric Administration. Uh, it was my wife in the background helping there. <laughs> She's uh, AE9YL, Vicky. And uh, uh, they, what they did is they uh, uh, put together all the disturbances of prop to propagation into three buckets, uh, three categories. And the first one is geomagnetic storms, okay? And it is one of the, uh, probably the major disturbances to propagation because it generally can last the longest. And what happens is uh, there's either an explosion on the sun called a coronal mass ejection, which is uh, ejects lots of material. And what that results in is in a, uh, a shock wave heading towards Earth. And what that does is distorts the magnetic field, and that results in uh, disturbed propagation. Um, other manifestations of a geomagnetic storm are visual aurora. Uh, if you live in the northern hemisphere or in the northern latitudes, uh, you, know, you can see aurora. And, and even the bigger storms, uh, you can see visual aurora down even uh, at latitudes in the Dallas area. Uh, they occur, but not that often. Uh, the more important effect, I think, of geomagnetic fields is to power grids because they can induce currents that will shut down a power station and cause blackouts, and that's happened before too. And that's why many scientists are uh, interested in forecasting the strength of a geomagnetic storm in order to predict uh, and tell power companies that, hey, there's something coming. Uh, you need to do something just to protect yourself. And like I said uh, just a couple of minutes ago, the geomagnetic storm can last for several days before the ionosphere gets back to normal. So it's probably the one that really disturbs everything the most. Now that's one of the disturbances to propagation. Uh, another one, uh, well, there, there are two, and they're really related to solar flares. Uh, as you said, Richard, earlier, solar flares really aren't our friend, and uh, th that's really true. 
there are two things that can happen when a solar flare erupts. The first, it gives off lots of radiation at X-ray wavelengths, and that can cause increased deregion absorption on the sunlit side of the Earth, and that's going to uh, cause our past to uh, go away for a bit. Uh, generally, that's you know maybe half an hour, hour type time frame. So uh, that aspect of a solar flare definitely shows itself, but it doesn't last that long. Now, the other issue that a solar flare can do is it can emit relativistic protons. In other words, protons of very, very high energy. And they get to Earth rather quick, and they also cause increased deregion absorption, but over the in the polar cap. So if there's any paths that you're talking to someone uh, you know, over the pole, usually the North Pole into Asia or something, those paths could go away for, uh, for a day or two. Uh, the solar flares are really the, the ones that uh, you know, astronauts are, are worried about because that, uh, the radiation, the X-ray uh, wavelengths can uh, you know, penetrate uh, spaceships. Uh, those energetic protons can go right through also, and they can cause hazards to our astronauts. And of course, they can disrupt our satellites too. So the, the thing to remember about uh, disturbances, disturbances to propagation is that there are really three one is the geomagnetic storm, which generally is the worst because it lasts the longest. Uh, the other is a solar flare causing X-ray wavelength radiation that causes increased deregion de absorption. And the third is uh, protons coming out of a solar flare that cause uh, increased deregion absorption in the polar cap. Um, if you ever go to the, uh, uh, the uh, Space Environment Center website, which is sec.noaa.gov, uh, you can get a lot of information there uh, about uh, disruptions of the propagation. All right. Well, <clears throat> uh, yeah, was, it took me a second to get that written down. Okay, so we've covered the K and the A index, and mm -hmm. we've talked about geomagnetic storms. Something else these guys hear a lot about are, uh, well, how do sunspots figure into all this? Okay, well, sunspots uh, generally are our friends. <laughs> um, the uh, sunspots uh, are areas on the sun that are associated with uh, radiation at extreme ultraviolet wavelengths. Uh, now, that's good because this radiation at those wavelengths can strip electrons from a neutral atom or molecule in the atmosphere, and that's what forms our ionosphere. So the more sunspots, the more extreme ultraviolet radiation, and therefore the ionosphere is more dense. And what that means is the uh, ionosphere can refract ever higher frequencies. So what that says is, uh, when the INS, when we have lots of sunspots, 10 meters is open, and 15 and 12 meters. When we don't have a lot of sunspots, like right now, uh, it's very rare to hear many stations on 12 meters and 10 meters. So, in summary, we we like sunspots uh, because that uh, opens up the higher bands, even six meters, and allows us to work uh, stations from all around the world. And uh, that's one of the exciting one of the many exciting facets of amateur radio. 
Well, I know exactly what you're talking about. I've been licensed nearly 20 years. I got licensed on the high side of a cycle. And uh, uh, let me tell you, I've had a lot of fun with the with 10 meters over the years. I really have. Uh, speaking of cycles, uh, um, well, we'll go ahead and skip over that. Um, okay, so we've got all this information. We've got the A index and the K index and sunspot numbers and all this other stuff. Where would somebody go to find this information in real time, maybe? Okay, well, the one of the easiest is just to turn your radio on, go to 10 megahertz. That's probably uh, the best frequency for most of us in the United States. And listen to WWV at 18 minutes past the hour. They give the current K index, and remember now the K index is, is a three-hour index, so that's pretty current. It'll tell you what the magnetic field is doing you know, within uh, the past three hours. They also give yesterday's A index, which is the uh, average of the eight three-hour K indices. And they also give the solar flux, which can be... Uh, uh, translated into uh, a sunspot number. Uh, if you want more information, there are many websites that uh, uh, you can get this from. I mentioned uh, the Space Environment Center, which is SEC. If you go to sec.noaa.gov, you will find, uh, you know, if you may have to do some surfing in their pages, but you'll find uh, uh, K indices, A indices, uh, sunspots, and everything else. Another good website is SpaceWeather. There's that word, spaceweather.com. They also uh, predict what the uh, upcoming conditions might be uh, with respect to are there going to be any solar flares, are there going to be any uh, disruptions to the magnetic field, etc. There's also another good website uh, put together by a gentleman in the Netherlands. It's uh, www.com dxlc.com slash solar and the dxlc of that stands for dx listening club and he has uh, a daily report of what the sun is doing and shows some nice pretty pictures too Uh, also one of the uh, major amateur radio hosts on the web has a propagation website and it's dx.qsl.net slash propagation and uh, they regurgitate the WWV report, and they also give the latest sunspot numbers. So uh, the Internet is a very good way to get some good real-time information on what's going on with the space weather. Yes, I've noticed that myself. Uh, Also, uh, in a few areas, we still have uh, one of them up live on on packet here, but you can also get into the DX clusters, I believe. And uh, uh, I know the one I sign on to gives you a lot of that information as part of your log, part of the log on when you uh, hook up with them. Okay. Um, yeah, that's right. Go ahead. Yeah, that's right. Because I run uh, I run the uh, I use the VE7CC's packet cluster program. And in the lower right-hand corner, there's uh, some uh, windows for uh, flux, solar flux, and A index and K index, and uh, geomagnetic field uh, 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 status. So 
Yep, that's that's there too. That's a good point, Richard. And uh, I didn't really get it on here, but uh, let, let's go with this real quick. You know, the I've found that there are a few fairly handy utilities out there that you can run on your computer and you plug the numbers in and it'll give you a nice little graph of uh, what's going on. Do you have one of those that you prefer? There are quite a few <laughs> propagation programs out there that uh, that uh, amateur radio operators use. Uh, the one that's uh, kind of the industry standard is is called Ion Cap, and one of its derivatives is VOA Cap, which is uh, uh, the version of Ion Cap that was done by the Voice of America to aid in their international shortwave broadcast schedules. Uh, VOA Cap is available uh, as a free download. It's uh, a little more involved than some of the other ones, but it's, like I said, the industry standard and it's regarded as the most accurate. Uh, there's some other ones out there that'll do just fine. Uh, one of the ones I like is W6EL Prop. That's available uh, from uh, DX, uh, uh, dot qsl.net slash W6EL Prop. And it's only a 500k download, so it's pretty. Uh, it, it ought to do pretty good even over a dial-up uh, uh, connection on on the internet. It also has a great uh, mapping feature. You can uh, input the uh, transmitter location, the receiver location, and uh, input a time and a month, and it'll show where the terminator is. In other words, where the uh, division between day and night is. It'll show the short path and the long path. So it gives a good overall picture of uh, what propagation uh, may involve, uh, just looking at a picture. And there are several others out there. Uh, HF Prop comes to mind. And if you just do a search on uh, HF propagation programs, I bet you you'd come up with at least uh, 10 to 15 hits on uh, programs. And most of these are free, and they're generated by gentlemen who uh, you know, just have an interest in that kind of stuff, and they like to share it with everybody. Well, I'm, you know, I'm glad to know that I picked the appropriate program because I use W6EL prop myself, and uh, you know, I can just fire that thing up and let it run, and uh, come back and stick my head in the shack every once in a while. And when it appears to be opening up on the computer screen, I can. Hit the hit the on button on the HF rig and off I go. Uh, I I really like that one myself. Um. Yeah, there's you know I, there's a lot of good ones out there and, and uh, they they all uh, have one thing in common and is the model of the ionosphere. They all basically use the same model. So what's different is uh, all the bells and whistles and how they present that uh, end data and uh, that's. You know, the thing to do is play with these different programs and pick the one that you feel most comfortable with and you like the best, and then go with that. Okay, so uh, we've talked about uh, space weather. We've talked about propagation programs. We've talked about uh, numerous things. So now let's get on to the fun stuff. Uh, you know, we've heard of these different propagation modes, and some of these guys out there might have heard of them, might not have heard of them. You know, I picked a few that uh, have always been interested, interesting to me. So uh, maybe, maybe you can give us a rundown on what some of these are. The the first one that comes to mind is uh, sporadic E or E skip. Yeah. 
Okay. Yeah, why don't we start with that? That's a good one to start with because uh, uh, it forces you to think about the structure of the ionosphere. Uh, and uh, let's start at the top, kind of. That, that there are basically three different regions in the ionosphere: uh, the D region, the E region, and the F region. And uh, a lot of people think of them in terms of layers. Uh, but they're really not layers. Uh, if you look at the electron density uh, versus height, it's a continuous curve. Uh, it has uh, a slight maximum at the E region peak. It has a bigger maximum at the F region peak. And the D region is more of an inflection point. So it's kind of more appropriate to talk about regions as opposed to layers. Uh, but having said that, uh, the sporadic, uh, when you talk about e-skip, uh, uh, it's a mode of propagation that uh, doesn't happen all the time. Uh, the, the main e-region is very well understood. Uh, that's because it's under direct solar control. In other words, when the sun comes up, the e-region builds up. When the sun goes down, the e-region goes down. Uh, to a residual nighttime level. But during uh, the late morning and early evening hours, in the summer months in the northern hemisphere, um, there can be instances of very high, uh, dense clouds of electrons at E-region altitudes. And this is called sporadic E, uh, another name for E-skip. So when someone says, uh, he works somebody via e-skip. What he's talking about is his signal was refracted via the electron density in these clouds that drift from generally from east to west, and uh, uh, propagation up to oh about 2,000 kilometers can be uh, uh, experienced with uh, sporadic e, and sometimes even clouds can line up uh, all the way to Europe, and you can have uh, a good uh, sporadic E opening during the summer months, uh, even on six meters, which is quite rare. Uh, although last summer was one of the best sporadic E um, years in history. There were Midwest stations working JAs, Japan's on uh, six meters, working Europe, etc. So it was pretty exciting. Um, like I said, this is a pretty important mode for six meters because generally F2 propagation, there's not enough electron density to uh, get allow propagation on six meters via the F region. So uh, everybody really looks forward to E region in the summer. Uh, also, should mention there's a lesser uh, occurrence of sporadic E in December too. So got to watch for that one. Yeah, we've got a couple guys here local that uh, before they went and took their general after uh, the changes changes in the regulations here recently, they were gung-ho six-meter guys, and they could pretty much uh, tell you what, what time of year it was the time to get on six because they, uh, they really were having a ball with it. And I remember, I remember more than once talking into the wee hours of the night on 10 meters to the guys here local a few years back, and we'd have stations from all over the country come in at 10 or 11 o'clock at night, and 
10 meters. Uh, <laughs> you know, we can hear California real good on 10 meters most of the time, but that, anywhere else in the U.S. is kind of iffy. So, um, okay, let, let's move on to the next one, uh, auroral propagation. And I, being from Texas, I have a hard time pronouncing that uh, appropriately. Auroral propagation. Uh, can you give us a rundown on that? Okay. Yeah, auroral propagation is, uh, well, as the name indicates, uh, it depends on aurora. Um, and in your comment about Texas is uh, well taken because uh, uh, generally the geomagnetic storms aren't severe enough to get down that way, but every once in a while they may. And, and I wouldn't be surprised if uh, some fellows down in your neck of the woods perhaps have worked uh, aurora. But what it is is uh, when the geomagnetic field becomes disturbed, uh, many electrons start precipitating. In other words, they uh, enter our ion, uh, our atmosphere and head to the ground, but they're channeled by the Earth's magnetic field, so they occur in an annular ring around the geomagnetic pole. Generally, the ones we talk about is the North Geomagnetic Pole. Uh, of course, all of this stuff happens down at the South Geomagnetic Pole, but there's not a lot of people down there to take advantage of it. But uh, what happens is all these electrons uh, precipitate. They cause visual aurora. And if the storm is big enough, it can cause uh, radio aurora. And what that simply is is just uh, electron density is high enough to reflect uh, 6 meters, 2 meters, and all that kind of those, those higher frequencies. Uh, this is a very important mode on 6 meters and, and even on 2 meters. Uh, and what you want to do during auroral propagation is point your antenna north towards the aurora. And it will uh, uh, reflect off of that. And you can usually you know, make contacts with other amateurs. One of the problems, though, is that uh, the signals are very distorted. And more than likely, sideband uh, might not get the job done. You might have to go to CW. Uh, the CW signal certainly won't sound like a pure tone. It'll sound kind of raspy and like a buzz, and uh, you might think that the other guy's transmitter is not working right, but uh, what it is is simply aurora, and that's a good way to, de to determine if that's what's going on. Uh, if the, you know, the K index is high, that's when you should generally look for aurora-type contacts, and uh, that's another thing that the uh, VHFers live for is uh, aurora propagation. Rural propagation. Yeah, we really don't get a whole lot of that down here. Uh, okay, so let's move on to the next one. Um, I had used to have a lot of fun with this one, Carl. Uh, backscatter. People wouldn't believe that I would work stations that I did, but it always seemed that I was lucky enough that when the backscatter was going on, I could grab a hold of it and use it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, backscatter is uh, an interesting mode of propagation. And... Uh, Okay, backscatter is a pretty interesting mode of propagation, and uh, my familiarity is mostly with HF uh, backscatter. And what it allows you to do is uh, work stations that are close in. Uh, a, a very good example of that is uh, my wife, Vicki, AE9YL, was chasing uh, work all states on uh, five bands. And, of course, it's difficult to uh, work the close-in states on the higher bands, 
because uh, the signals generally skip right over those closer in distances. So what she took advantage of was backscatter to uh, work some of the close-in states like Illinois and uh, uh, Missouri and Ohio, et cetera, Wisconsin. But what backscatter simply is is uh, pointing your antenna uh, towards the ionosphere, and the ionosphere is not uh, uniform. It has small-scale irregularities, and what happens is your signal can scatter off of that, and scatter kind of means it kind of goes every which way it wants to. And luckily, a lot of it comes back enough that we can hear it. So it's a very important mode for uh, uh, HF. And uh, of course, there's also uh, you know, the possibility of scatter on the VHF frequencies also. Uh, so uh, you know, VHFers take advantage of that to, uh, if they're working on some kind of an award like worked all states or uh, 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 grids, uh, they can use that to uh, fill in a lot of grids. Yeah, and in fact, I've had such good backscatter from time to time that I would be able to work guys on the other side of the county on 15 and 10 meters. You know, that's 30, 40 miles away, and there have been occasions when that's happened. Uh, the interesting thing about worked all states uh, when you live in a state the size of Texas is that it's not difficult to get Texas. <laughs> Oh, 700 miles. Right. Well, from Dallas, you're talking El Paso, 700 miles, and uh, uh, Brownsville's about that far away. Anyway, that's that's kind of off subject. Well, okay, so we've covered some of those types of propagation. Um, some of these guys might not understand this one, and uh, I never understood. I never heard it called the blind zone. Uh, from the time I got licensed, they called it the skip zone and we were talking about backscatter just a second ago that's one of the ways to get around that skip zone but uh, uh, what are your thoughts on the skip zone yeah I, I don't think I, I think I might have heard the term blind zone but uh, uh, I think it's more commonly called the skip zone and and what it means is uh, it's the distance from your QTH to where your RF generally is going to come down uh, and it's more pronounced on the higher bands. For example, uh, let's say you're on 15 meters and if you had a very directional antenna and you pointed it straight up, of course your signal would go uh, straight up. More than likely there's not enough ionization uh, to return it to Earth so it would go out into space and go forever. Now as you tilt that directional antenna down uh, there's a point where uh, the elevation angle is low enough that the 15-meter electromagnetic wave will be refracted back to Earth, and where that hits Earth, uh, that distance back to your QTH is called the skip zone. And whether in other words, your your signal you know, generally skips over that total distance, and it's very tough to uh, work somebody there. Uh, the skip zone is a function of frequency. It's a function of uh, the ionosphere, which means it's a function of where we are in a solar cycle, the time of day, the month, etc. So it's hard to pin down exactly, uh, you know, what that distance is. But uh, it's most pronounced on the higher bands, and that's why you generally don't hear close-in stuff uh, on the higher bands. But like we just talked about, backscatter is one way to uh, fill that in. And, of course, ground wave can also do it, too. If you, you know, run high power with a good high antenna, you can... Uh, 
uh, negate some of that skip zone uh, close to your uh, your location. Well, also uh, the MCOM groups, for the most part, and uh, the one around here especially, are uh, they're they're really gung ho over NVIS, and uh, that will definitely bring uh, the stations closer into you, up where you can hear them and work them the way you need to. Of course, my Elmers are probably spinning in their graves where NVIS is concerned because, in their opinion, if you had a 75-meter antenna that was only 30 feet off the ground, it, it just it wasn't a way to do things. <laughs> well, okay. Right. Right. Well, uh, okay, Carl. We've... Uh, we covered just about everything in that I had uh, on my mind, and we uh, actually have gone a little long on this. And I'm uh, I thank you for bearing with me through this interview. Before we uh, before we wrap her up, do you have any any thoughts, further thoughts on uh, some things these guys might need to know about radio wave propagation? Yeah, just two points, I guess, to, to wrap it up. Uh, uh, you know, what, why is propagation important in amateur radio? Well, it's, uh, you know, that, that's an interesting question because uh, amateur radio has evolved into a hobby, basically. Um, uh, of course, it was founded on uh, uh, three prime missions. One was emergency communications, uh, public service, and a pool of technical people. So, you know, when, when you're... Uh, uh, Participating in in these prime missions of amateur radio, emergency communications and public service, and it's always good to understand propagation so you can pick the band that allows you to accomplish your mission. Uh, not all missions are close in where you use VHF. You know, there's a, a whole bunch of other public service that requires long distance communications, and so a knowledge of which band is open right now when you need it is very helpful. Also, it contributes to the uh, uh, that other prime mission of that amateur radio operators are supposed to be a pool of technical people. Now, you know, understanding propagation doesn't mean you have to be an ionospheric physicist, but, you know, just have some basic knowledge. And the other point I'd just like to make is if, if you're really interested in about radio wave propagation, there's some uh, uh, good starter books out there. Uh, one of the best ones is uh, the new shortwave propagation handbook, and it's available uh, from uh, CQ uh, magazine guys. It's at www.cq-amateur-radio.com. That's a very good entry level, and it covers well, uh, sunspot cycles. It covers the propagation topics we talked about and a whole lot more, and it's a very easy reading. Um, there's uh, another one uh, a step above that. It's a little bit more technical. Pistol's Guide to HF Propagation. And it's on a, uh, a CD available from uh, World Radio at www.wr6wr.com, and it's the 2000 CD-ROM. It's the whole, uh, all the issues of uh, World Radio in 2000 are on that CD, plus uh, uh, the Little Pistols Guide to HF Propagation. Now, there's some other books, too, that uh, are uh, available, and they get technically more involved. And if uh, anyone has any interest in uh, uh, knowing more about propagation or talking to me directly, I can be reached at k9la at net. So that's about all I have to say, Richard, and I uh, uh, 
Thank you for the opportunity to uh, talk about one of my favorite subjects, propagation. Well, Carl, you don't know how much I appreciate you coming on uh, coming on the podcast this week because, like I said, uh, this conversation was so interesting. I just kind of wanted to let the tape roll because there's a lot of good information there, and we just barely scratched the surface, I believe. Uh, but hopefully the guys listening out there, the folks listening out there, they'll go uh, check out some of these websites, read some of these books and articles, and... Uh, have, have, they'll be ready to, to be wearing them out in contests or whatever. <laughs> of course, come uh, back out of look. When I was looking on the web, when I punched you in on, on Google, I noticed that uh, you've operated some DX stations and everything else, holding the mackerel. And why the missus there? She's she's liable to end up on my hero list also. But as for this week, let's. Uh, We'll go ahead and wrap this up. And uh, once again, uh, we want to thank Carl, K9LA, for uh, visiting with us on Resonant Frequency, the Amateur Radio Podcast this week. And we'll go ahead and move on to the next segment. Guest on our podcast, Roy, 85KZ, former ARRL section manager for the North Texas section, and Repeater Guru. Roy and I will be talking about the ins and outs of repeaters. Hello, Roy, and uh, welcome to Resonant Frequency, the Amateur Radio Podcast. Hi, Richard. Great to be here. I uh, hope I can be uh, some help uh, some new folks out there that want to learn more about repeaters today. I've been playing tag back and forth. I'm just glad to get you on the phone long enough to actually actually run through some things with you. Uh, I'm sure there are a lot of people out there that know a lot more about repeaters than I do. Uh, I have built a couple and been using them for a long time and uh, have been enjoying adding additional uh, functions to repeaters and linking them up to the Internet. So that's that's been kind of my forte over the past couple of years. Well, I guess the uh, the burning question in everybody's mind would be, uh, what is a repeater, Roy? Well, a repeater, as the word might suggest, is a system that actually repeats uh, a radio signal. And, you know, why would you want to do that? Well, certain radio frequencies uh, have certain limitations because of surroundings and, and atmospheric conditions and just the the natural physics involved with the way that radio waves propagate and one of the ways we can extend the range of some of our amateur radios is to use repeaters and these repeater stations are essentially radios that are under automatic control and uh, the automatic control comes from something called a repeater controller that we can talk about in more detail but essentially you transmit on one frequency and the repeater 
has a receive radio that receives on that frequency and then simultaneously retransmit that received audio on the secondary transmit frequency. So your repeaters are usually involved with uh, a repeater pair. So you have uh, uh, two different frequencies and your radios are designed to transmit on one frequency and then listen on another. And the repeater actually transmits on the opposite frequency and listens on the, on the opposite frequency from your mobile or handy talkie radio. And it's able to receive your transmission and then retransmit that. And that, and that sounds really good, but well, you know, why would that have any advantage over just two people with a mobile radio or a handy talkie? And the thing that makes that system work well is the, uh, the key to the repeater system, which is the repeater site. And those are typically uh, on high locations in a city. You might find them on the, the tallest building or in other areas you may find them on mountains. So they have a much uh, broader range, uh, line of sight for receiving and transmitting these radio signals. So they become very beneficial for extending the range of, uh, let's say, a, a handy talkie that might have a two to five mile range to being able to transmit you know, 20 or 100 miles. And in addition, because of this uh, repeater controller, they typically will have additional features that you can do things like link repeaters together. So you might have a repeater in, let's say, Dallas that has a, a link to a repeater in Fort Worth. So when someone is using the repeater in Dallas, their transmission is being linked over via some mechanism. could be a, a radio link uh, to a repeater station in Fort Worth. So uh, a person with a little handy talkie that might normally get two to five mile range is now able to talk to someone 30, 40 miles away by using this these systems of repeaters. So that's kind of it in a nutshell. Well, let's uh, let's dig in a little bit for just a moment. You mentioned the controller. What kind of uh, what kind of things can you do with a repeater with the controller and a repeater? Okay, well, you can imagine that uh, if you're receiving a radio frequency on a receive radio, you've got to have some way to, to transmit it out the other radio, the transmitter. And of course, uh, you can assume that you're going to be linking the uh, the audio signals, for instance, the audio output of the, the receive radio to the uh, microphone input on the transmit radio, but something's got to be able to tell the, the radio, the transmitter, when to transmit. And that's one of the functions that the rep repeater controller provides. Uh, it can sense when a received signal is present on the, its receive radio, and then it will route that audio to the transmitter and then key up the transmitter. And that's all done with various types of electronic circuits and, and various audio inputs and, and logic circuits and not real, real complicated stuff, but um, a repeater controller implements something called a, a repeater port. And this port has the audio signal lines, the inputs and outputs for the audio, and then we'll have logic lines that uh, will be used to tell the repeater for instance, when a carrier is sensed on the receive radio, and that will essentially tell the controller that, oh, you've got a received signal. So you need to send that over to the transmitter and key that transmitter up. So the repeater controllers uh, these days uh, are getting very sophisticated and will include microprocessors and digital audio recorders and uh, various types of timers and clocks and, and voice synthesizers. So 
uh, you'll get a lot of different functionality on the more modern repeater controllers. They'll do things like uh, speak voice messages, either pre-recorded digital audio or text-to-speech type messages. And you can have the club repeater, let's say, that uh, is sending out your um, club meeting information every hour. Um, and also doing critical things like IDing, since that is a radio that, that is uh, transmitting, has to have a way to send an, an ID. And your repeater sites, or, or your, your repeaters themselves, are typically uh, licensed to what's called a trustee. And that is on record with uh, the FCC. And we'll use that trustee's call sign. It could be a, a personal call sign or a club call sign. And uh, that call sign has to transmit at certain intervals every 10 minutes and at the end of the, the last transmission. It's got to follow the same rules as any amateur radio operator IDing. So that logic uh, to ID is actually built into those repeater controllers so uh, they can be legal. There's actually rules and regulations in Part 97 of the FCC rules that, that govern the amateur radio service that specify um, how repeaters can operate and, and uh, how they must ID and, and what, frequency, what frequencies they can operate on, uh, things like that. Uh, so the repeater controller is like the brain of the, of the repeater, you know, providing all the functionality to actually handle the reception and transmission of the audio and IDing and any other special function like I mentioned, uh, announcements or what was real popular before cell phones is actually creating a telephone interface and having something called a phone patch. Back uh, in the days before cell phones, I can remember how cool it was to be able to um, make contact with a local repeater and via touchtone digits on your microphone, being able to bring up the auto patch and actually make phone calls. And the way that worked is the one of those repeater ports would be connected to uh, the plain old telephone system, uh, the landline phone system, and you would get a dial tone and be able to uh, control the phone line uh, via your radio through the repeater controller. Now, those were very handy for making emergency calls. Or I know on several occasions I actually have stopped uh, to assist in a, uh, a traffic incident and was able to call for um, emergency personnel. Uh, this is long before cell phones, but you would uh, dial up uh, your, uh, or actually not dial up, but uh, bring up your local repeater with the, with the phone patch and be able to dial 911 and talk to a dispatcher and, and expedite uh, whatever is necessary at the particular accident site. So that came in handy a number, a number of times. Plus, it was pretty cool. You know, your friends were going, wow, listen to that. You're making a phone call from your car. How are you doing that? It was a great way to get people interested in amateur radio. So, uh, yeah, lots of functionality in, in the repeater controllers. And, and these days, those controllers are, are used to interface with computers now. Like I mentioned, being able to connect the, uh, the repeater site up to the Internet and use voice over IP technology, which uh, it may be a term some folks are familiar with, but it's just a way to send audio over the Internet. And we have a couple of real popular systems that allow these voice over IP enabled repeater sites to connect to each other over the Internet. So like I used the example earlier of uh, two sites being connected via an RF link between Dallas and Fort Worth. Well, these days with computers, and specialized software and the internet, 
using the voice over IP technology, you can actually link repeaters all over the world. So now from your handy talkie, connecting to a repeater, you can make contact with folks uh, anywhere that the Internet is. And that's one of the most popular modes on one of the repeaters I operate in Dallas, is uh, making contact with people over systems called uh, Echolink and IRLP, Echolink um, you know, being a Windows-based program that allows you to connect radios over the Internet and IRLP using Linux. And IRLP stands for the Internet Radio Linking Project. Uh, both of those systems work really well for adding functionality to local repeaters that may have a range of about 100 miles. Now basically allows you to extend your range anywhere the, the Internet is. And uh, those things have come in very handy for uh, emergency communications. And uh, like a lot of the hurricane nets use those for for people to actually participate and help with coordinating hurricane radio traffic. Uh, they don't even have to be in the involved area. They can be anywhere in the world and contribute to these nets via these voice over IP enabled repeaters. Well, there you go. It's moved along so fast that uh, I can hardly believe it myself. You were talking about auto patches a while ago. First 10 years I was licensed, I probably had the code to every repeater in Dallas and Fort Worth because I was so well known around the area. They just gave them to me. And I think I probably made about four uh, auto patch calls in that in the first 10 years I was licensed, and that was it. I really didn't use it a whole lot. Uh, yeah. And, you know, one of the things about the auto patch in those days, um, you know, part of the part of the rules, you're – you know, you're not supposed to use amateur radio for something that uh, can be accomplished with uh, a phone call. So, um, in the case of making an emergency call, uh, that was that was acceptable because that was you know emergency traffic. So, yeah, so I can understand why you wouldn't be using the the repeaters and the, and the auto patch uh, a whole lot. And I didn't either. I think I only I never used it for any kind of social activities, but really just for emergency communications. Oh, yeah. Uh, we'll have to get moving in a second, but uh, I do remember uh, there was a couple of folks that were using using auto patch on one of the local repeaters. The gentleman involved was a pizza delivery driver, and the lady involved was his wife, and they were passing coded messages over the repeater uh, and using auto patch to call back home and that kind of stuff to keep their pizza delivery business going. <laughs> wow. People are That's in- a definite no no. <laughs> yeah, they they they're innovative. Well, okay, let me uh let me get us back on track here. Okay, so you you got a duplexer and a radio and a, a controller and a and you got all these things put together and you you figured it out, which is quite a task. If I've got all this stuff, can I just throw a repeater up and and just uh, get it going and have it have it do its thing? Well, you know, technically, yes, you can. Um, but you got to realize that you know you have to play well in the sandbox. We have a limited sandbox that we as amateur radio operators are allowed to play within, frequency-wise. And uh, there is a particular part of the radio spectrum. That is allocated to these uh, repeater repeater systems. So there's a limited set of frequencies that you can utilize in a certain area. 
So that introduces the concept of a frequency coordinator. And most every area in the U.S. has a frequency coordination body. Uh, we do have one in Texas, and uh, it's divided up into a number of regions. Uh, but before you put up a repeater, you should make contact with the frequency coordination body to coordinate what frequencies to use. Because um, if you were to happen to put up a, a repeater on a frequency pair that was already in use and coordinated by the local frequency coordinator, and your new repeater then caused interference, uh, according to the FCC rules, it would be up to you to resolve that interference since you do not have the coordinated repeater. And so you, you risk uh, losing your investment in uh, time and money in repeater hardware and, and like you said, all the equipment it takes to actually make a functioning repeater. Um, that would be at risk if you were to actually come up on a repeater pair that was in use. So frequency coordination is an important part of the life of someone that is involved in making repeater systems. Yeah, that uh, that makes a lot of sense. Um, I wouldn't think you'd want to just throw one up any old where. Or, but here in Texas, aren't there some experimental low-power frequency kind of things where guys can get up on there and they really don't have to fool with the, uh, uh, the VHF society? Well, actually, uh, those... Those frequencies, it's, it's by gentleman's agreement that we define these experimental frequencies or production repeater frequencies. And really, uh, you should make contact with the repeater coordination facility or, or the coordinator in, in your area um, in Texas, that's the Texas VHFFM Society. Um, and uh, they, they can inform you of those experimental experimental channels and they can actually issue you a um, a coordination um, to use in those experimental areas and of course you're not guaranteed uh, uh, from receiving or, or generating interference on another user or another repeater site but but uh, yes there are experimental frequencies that you can use to get a repeater up and play around with that um, uh, pretty quickly and uh, most of the information about those frequencies can be uh, can be gotten from you know websites for the various frequency coordinators in in your area. So uh, it, the the amount of um, of interaction you may have to have with a a frequency coordinator uh, could vary depending on where you are and and, and what that coordination body. Uh, does and, and how they're involved with those experimental frequencies. So, um, so the, I guess my answer would be, you know, yes, you can put up a repeater um, without in, involvement with the, the frequency coordinator. Um, just do some homework and, and make sure that you're in the experimental band and, and not going to interfere with a, uh, you know, a, a coordinated production repeater system. Well, that's that's the whole deal. Amateur radio operators have always played friendly, and we need to continue to play friendly, and that makes a lot of sense. Yeah. Uh, a while ago, you said something about a trustee. What what exactly is a trustee, really? Well, a tr you know, you got to realize that a repeater is actually an automated system that operates by itself. It's a standalone uh, radio station that is under automatic control, and based on the FCC rules, 
you just can't have a you know a, a radio transmitting that's not under under someone's control, and the person who is uh, legally responsible for that repeater station is called the trustee, and uh, that is usually the person that will coordinate with the frequency coordination body for the repeater pairs and make sure everything is in order as far as where the thing is located and and you know what its range is and it's not going to interfere with the repeaters that may be on the same frequency in another city and, and whatnot. So that trustee is responsible for the ongoing operation and maintenance of the repeater site. Um, that may be a repeater that is personally owned by the trustee. Like in my case, I own my repeater. I'm responsible for maintaining the relationship with the, the site owner. Um, the site owners are uh, typically people that own buildings or towers, and you have to get their permission or pay, and or pay them rent uh, for a spot on their tower or building. So I, I maintain the equipment. I, I, I manage those relationships, uh, and I'm the trustee of that repeater. But in the case of a club, you may have a, a bunch of people that are involved with maintaining uh, the, uh, the repeater equipment and securing the repeater site and maintaining the relationship with the site owners. Uh, but someone in that club is going to be designated as the trustee and uh, will be noted on the paperwork that is filed with the frequency coordination body. And in the case of a club call sign, may also be on the paperwork that is filed with the FCC to get that, that license and that call sign associated with that license. So the, the trustee is is really some someone who is re mainly responsible for the for the maintenance and ongoing operation that re of that repeater. And until fairly recently, the repeater trustee was somewhat responsible for the, the content of what was actually being transmitted over the the frequencies of, of that repeater. Um, you know, if someone was misusing. Uh, the repeater and, and maybe using foul language or, or whatnot, not really following FCC rules. Uh, in the older days, uh, the re repeater trustee was somewhat responsible for that. And to, to a smaller degree, they are still. But uh, the FCC has recently relaxed those rules. So you're, you know, if someone were, were to get on and, and uh, abuse the repeater and use foul language, let's say, um, the repeater trustee is not really going to lose their license for that. But the repeater trustee should be monitoring what's happening on the repeater, and you know they may have to take action. They may have to turn it off or or have a talk with someone that's not following the rules, let's say. So uh, it's really the person that, like I said, is um, responsible for the ongoing maintenance and operation of the repeater site. Okay, and uh, yeah, they've. Uh... They've loosened the rules up on the digital guys also. I, I remember we used to be under the under the same restraints that the repeater operators were if uh, business communications came across a come across one of our bulletin boards or something, uh, we would be responsible for it if we and we still are if we see it, we need to kill it, but uh, they're not going to come after us if it should slip through. And the systems we have available to us nowadays are not as not real efficient at catching stuff that's not supposed to be on there. But right. once again, I'm off on a on uh, <laughs> off on information for another podcast talking about digital. I don't know mm -hmm. who I'm going to talk to about that. Uh, trustees, 
the trustee of the repeater, um, a lot of people have heard the term control operator. Are, trustee, are the trustee and the control operator the same thing? Uh, yes and no. Um, control operators, that is uh, a position that's recognized within the STC rules. That is someone that typically has the ability to control the repeater. Um, you can imagine repeaters are under automatic control, so they're operating 24 hours a day, seven days a week, and it's a little difficult for one person to keep track of everything that's happening on the repeater uh, all the time. So a trustee can designate control operators, and typically you want to have a number of them that are responsible folks, and you give them uh, essentially the keys to controlling uh, the repeater site. So if something were to happen, and you know equipment does malfunction, you may have a situation where your transmitter gets stuck in transmit mode, and you really don't want that to happen. You want to you want to be able to recognize that you've got some type of failure, and, and take action by uh, shutting the system down. So control operators are folks that are designated um, by the trustee and have the ability to control the repeater and basically add an extra set of ears to what's going on on that particular repeater to uh, make sure everything's uh, running smoothly. So um, it's, uh, it can be the trustee. The trustee may delegate all of that control operator function to other people. And uh, usually you don't have uh, much trouble finding folks that are willing to help, but typically monitor the system and are at the ready to correct any issue that may come up. Yeah, well, I'm not sure how many control operators you have over on your machine, but I do remember one back when I was first licensed over at uh, over at the Dallas Amateur Radio Club. It'd be three, four o'clock in the morning. We'd be cutting up and carrying on, and if we got too far out of line, he'd he'd pop in there and say, "Boys, y'all need to settle down," and then that would be the end of it. I've heard of more uh, more active ones that uh, if, if they just didn't like the conversation that was going on, would shut the repeater down. But I guess that's at the discretion of the control operator and why he's why he is the control operator. Yeah, and of course you're dealing with personalities as in anything in, in amateur radio as well. So you may find some control operators are much more diplomatic. And, and tolerant of newcomers, and, and others aren't. <laughs> so it just really depends on who you're dealing with. Well, Roy, uh, I know you run a repeater here locally. Uh, I really don't know a whole lot of, about it. And the folks listening to the podcast might want to know what kind of what kind of equipment uh, of the equipment you have up and running. Okay. Well, it's uh, it's actually a microwave repeater operates on the frequency pair of uh, 1292.3, um, that being the, uh, the receive frequency of, or actually it would be the receive frequency of your mobile radio. And um, the uh, equipment is implemented with uh, two Kenwood TM541. So they're essentially mobile radios that we opened up and, and uh, accessed the various signals that we needed, like um, the, the audio in and out, and the um, the carrier uh, carrier operated squelch, and uh, we had to get the, into the push to talk uh, circuit. And once we opened that stuff up, we interface that to a repeater controller. And um, you know, like I described before, there's a bunch of different brands of repeater controllers, and they all uh, do basically the same thing. 
uh, some of them have more functionality than others. Um, and of course, with the repeater controller, the other critical component of repeater, you, you mentioned it earlier, is the duplexer. And what the duplexer does, it's essentially an RF filter that allows you to use a single antenna for both uh, your transmit and receive function. And uh, the reason you use a filter is because your repeater frequencies are so close to each other that uh, since the repeater is transmitting while the receiver is receiving, if you didn't have this RF filter on it, uh, the RF energy from the transmitter would make your, your re re receiver uh, much more, much less sensitive to the incoming signal, so it would reduce the range that your, that your repeater could receive. So these duplexers are uh, very common. They're, they're really required on any single antenna uh, repeater system uh, to allow the two, uh, the one antenna to, to handle the two frequencies, the transmit and receive frequency uh, simultaneously. So uh, we've got that and then a, basically a ground plane uh, 1.2 gig antenna up on, on top of a a building near downtown Dallas that's got, got quite a range, and um, that's the 23 centimeter band, so, you know, 1200 megahertz. And like I said, it's a 1292.3, 1272.3 being the, uh, the the other half of that frequency pair. And while there's um, there's not a lot of activity, has, historically has not been a lot of activity in that 1.2. Uh, gigahertz range, we're starting to see an increase because of the new uh, D-Star radios that are becoming really popular, which is a new digital mode uh, that was released by ICOM. And their main D-Star functionality is implemented in a 1.2 gig radio. So you have got 1.2 gig digital voice and digital voice repeaters, as well as analog voice. And I guess the the, the digital analog would be a whole nother uh, podcast for you. That whole concept of digital audio and uh, that, that whole era is exploding. But um, the 1.2 gig, and the other reason I put up a 1.2 gig repeater is there weren't any frequency pairs available in the uh, 2 meter or 70 centimeter bands, the uh, 146, 147, and the, the, the 440, uh, 441, 442 range there. So. Uh, it was a way to, for me to get a repeater up quickly, and uh, we're starting to see more activity, like I said, because of the popularity of the, the 1.2 gig D-Star radios, which do analog and digital voice. All right. Well, uh, the 1.2 gig radios, yeah, I've uh, I've been looking for one of those uh, single-banded one, and I couldn't afford them when they were common, and now they're not so common. And that new digital radio, yeah, I'm... Uh, I'm attempting to get a hold of somebody for the podcast for that. I just hope it's not way over some of the new guys' heads. Yeah, well, you know, the um, it, it it might be uh, new folks enter in, in, into amateur radio. They're typically technician class licensees, so they're only licensed for above 50 megahertz. So the repeater world is really where they they start getting their feet wet, and. Um, it's a, it's a good idea to play around with the analog mode first before delving into the digital voice because there are a lot of concepts that are pretty new and folks that have been playing around with repeaters for quite a while 
uh, are experiencing a learning curve on using these new digital voice capabilities. Uh, and of course, the repeaters also have additional functionality. These D-Star repeaters are also internet linkable, like I was mentioning the Echolink and IRLP. Now there's a whole nother voice over IP protocol that is proprietary to the, the D-Star radios. And uh, you can use those to communicate with other D-Star repeaters uh, around the world. So that's, uh, that's kind of a new area. A lot of folks that have been playing around with repeaters for a long time are pretty excited about it because it's something new to play with. Yeah, I intend on playing with it myself. I, I have an ICOM uh, 2200H over here I won in a raffle last year. And as soon as I'm able to get the digital card for it, I'm going to give that a shot and see how it works out. We also have one of the repeater owners over here in Mesquite that's going to put uh, the digital system up on, on VHF on where his repeater's at so that we'll have one over here. I understand they already have one over in Plano, Texas, and those guys are talking to guys out on out in California on it. Yep. Well, Roy, uh, thank you for taking the time to be with us today. We could probably talk all afternoon about, about repeaters and, and linking these things up and everything else. Uh, May have to get you or Chris to come by and talk with us about IRLP. I can I can speak fairly intelligently about Echolink, but IRLP is still a mystery to me. IRLP is very similar to Echolink, and yeah, I'd be glad to to uh, do another podcast with you in the future. And uh, I guess just before we uh, conclude, I'd, I'd just like to say one thing about um, about amateur radio for the new folks that are just now getting licensed and getting into it. Uh, only about twenty two percent of amateur radio operators that are licensed actually ever get on the air. And it's, I guess, because of mic fright and maybe not understanding the, the technology. But I just wanted to say, don't be afraid of it. Um, get on there, jump in. You know, don't worry about doing something wrong. There, there are plenty of people out there to help you along. They're called Elmers. Those are folks that, are, that can take you under their wing and, and show you the ropes. But uh, don't be scared. Get past that mic fright and Get on the get on the air and get radioactive. Well, there you go. And at some point, I'm hoping to do an Elmer uh, podcast. So y'all, y'all keep on listening. But I take it from Roy. You know, he's had that call sign so long that some of the letters have fallen off of it. So I would tend to believe he knows what he's talking about. <laughs> All right. Well, Roy, thank you once again. And I know we had a little trouble hooking up, but it was sure enough worth the wait. All right, Richard, it was a pleasure. Thanks a lot, and uh, we'll see you down the lot. All righty, and y'all hang in there because we're going we're gonna to play that music I'm sure y'all don't like and move on to the next segment. to the end of another Resonant Frequency of Amateur Radio Podcast. Once again, thank you for downloading us. We'd like to thank uh, uh, IOTA PromoNet, PodSafe Audio, and Magnatune for the music heard on this episode of Resonant Frequency. Uh, if y'all would like to get a hold of myself or see what's going on or drop a donation, drop by kb5jbv.blogspot.com. 
or send me an email at kb5jbv at gmail.com. And something new for those of you that are on Twitter, I am now on Twitter. Just uh, uh, look me up at twitter.com stroke kb5jbv. We're adding people every day. Y'all come follow me. And next time we'll have y'all a little more, uh, a little better stuff. And uh, uh, once again, I apologize for this particular episode. But until we see y'all again, uh, oh yeah, by the way, let me know how you like the intro music. So until we meet again, uh, everybody be safe out there. Take care of your families and 73.